I trust that you were praying along quietly with Lee as he prayed because he just gave a great summary of the book of Colossians. So if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to turn to Colossians chapter 1. Today we are reading verses 1 through 5a. We're going to break in the middle of a verse. You know, of course, that the verses are not, the verse numberings and divisions are not original to the text. They were added later for our convenience and, and reference. But we are reading from this first chapter of Paul's letter to the Colossians, and I invite you now to hear God's word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ Jesus at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. If you're following along in the outline, you'll see that the first point is that there's nothing new under the sun. Ecclesiastes tells us that. And Specifically, when we come to the message of Colossians, what is not new is that there is a universal tendency, there has been in every age and there still is to this day, there is a universal tendency to add something to Jesus, as if Jesus is not enough. And Paul wrote to the Colossians in chapter 2, verse 6, that as you received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. There's a tendency, especially among believers, to think that, okay, I received Jesus by faith, I'm saved by grace through faith, but now that I'm saved, I'm going to switch and go a different direction, I'm going to rely on something else, I'm going to add something to Jesus as if Jesus is not enough. Colossians, this letter to the Colossians uh, was written to emphasize the sole sufficiency of Christ, that Jesus is enough, he is sufficient, and that we can rely upon him. But fallen humanity is not content with who Jesus is. It's not enough for fallen humanity. We seek out someone or something else. We don't pay attention to all that Scripture says about him. And if we did see Jesus for who he really is, we would be absolutely content in him. Fallen humanity is also not content with what Jesus has done. Yes, we may confess that he died on the cross, that he rose again from the dead, but somehow we are tempted to say that's not enough. We need him to do something specific in our life today, or we won't view him as good and worthy of our trust. And so there is this universal tendency, and there always has been, to add something to Jesus. But when we try to add anything to Jesus, we are actually subtracting because Jesus is our sole sufficiency. When we try to add something to him, we are subtracting Jesus plus anything equals nothing. And so Paul writes to these believers in Colossae. 
He identifies himself as an apostle. And you might wonder, well, what is an apostle? I hear that term. I read it in the Bible. I hear different churches talk about apostles. And they may be referring to various persons, some in scripture or some in the current day. But the Bible uses the term apostle very basically, the word means one who is sent, but in this specific context, it is one who is commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ, who's had an encounter with the risen Lord, as Paul, the former Saul of Damascus, did on the road to Damascus, or Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, had this encounter with the risen Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus commissioned him to take the gospel to the nations to establish or plant churches in various cities to the ends of the earth. And so when Paul identifies himself as an apostle, he's saying, I have seen the risen Lord. I've been commissioned by him. I've been given this message to take to the nations. Specifically, Paul was going to the Gentiles, those non-Jewish people groups throughout the world of his day. So he identifies himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And so he's affirming that what he's doing is according to God's purpose. He didn't begin this process on his own. He is following the purpose of God. And he writes to the saints, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Now, when you hear the word saints, you might have different images come to mind. You might think of concrete statues that people have in their gardens. You might think of little ivory or plastic figurines that some people have on their dashboards. And some people pray to saints. Um, I remember reading in the classified sections of the newspaper sometime prayers to St. Christopher or St. So-and-so as if the saints are reading the newspaper especially the classified section, and even if they were, that they could do something about the situation that you were concerned about. When the Bible speaks of saints, it literally means holy ones, those who have been set apart, those who have been sanctified, those who have been called, justified, and made righteous through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And some of you have heard me say that the Bible never uses the word saints in the singular form. And if you've heard, I need to make a correction to that. There is one use in Philippians 4.21, I believe it is, where it says, greet every saint. And so it's talking about all the saints together. What I meant by saying the Bible doesn't use this word in the singular form is that we tend to talk about so-and-so. They're such a saint, like they're up here They've reached first-level Christian status, and the rest of us are down here. The Bible doesn't make that kind of distinction. The Bible says that we all, as believers, are called to be saints together. You see, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And so the saints are God's people called to be holy, to be consecrated, to be set apart unto God. And the saints are also faithful by God's grace, we're enabled to be faithful. So that's who Paul is writing to. And he mentions some different people in this book. Paul apparently had not been to Colossae. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. So Paul apparently had not been to Colossae. But Epaphras 
seems to have had an encounter with Paul on one of his missionary journeys, heard the gospel, and gone back to Colossae. And in Colossians 4.12, Paul says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. So Epaphras was with Paul when he wrote this letter, and Epaphras was from Colossae. The introduction mentions Paul and Timothy, but the letter uses the singular I, where Paul is speaking, apparently, for himself. So it seems that Paul was writing, and Timothy was likely his secretary. It was written to Christians in this small city of Colossae. It was to be shared with the church also in the city of Laodicea. And a letter sent to that church in Laodicea was also to be read at Colossae. So there was some interweaving of these two churches and two cities. And they were to share back and forth these letters from the Apostle Paul. The letter was probably written around 62 AD, close in time to the letters to the Ephesians and Philemon. And all three letters were sent with Tychicus and Onesimus, the former slave of Philemon, and Onesimus was apparently also from Colossae, where Philemon lived. So that's some historical background and some context to this uh, book of a letter of Colossians. And so, as we've said, Colossians was written to emphasize the sole sufficiency of Christ. And as he writes to these believers at Colossae, he gives thanks to them. Verse 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. That is a wonderful way to pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. To begin by thanking God for them, and then going on to intercede for them according to the Spirit's leading or what you know is going on in their life. And today we are going to zero in on verses 4 and 5 in particular, where he says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. The love that he talks about here, he says, it's because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. And so I want to pause and camp on that for a moment. As you read the Bible and study and meditate on the inspired Word of God, I trust that you will ask questions of the text of Scripture. Now, I don't mean questions like, is this true? Or did this really happen? Or should I really believe this? Rather, I mean that you would ask questions about apparent contradictions. And I say apparent contradictions because the Bible does not contradict itself. It is fully consistent. But there are passages that at first glance on the surface might seem to contradict one another. So that's one question that you can ask. How do we reconcile apparent contradictions in Scripture? And I trust that you will also ask questions about things that are not immediately clear, like what does this mean? It's talking in this passage or in Colossians about worship of angels. What's that all about? And I trust that you will also ask questions, and this is most relevant to us today, about the logical connections between ideas in Scripture. To do that, you first need to notice and pay attention to those logical connections. Words like so that, in order that, how much more, if this, then that, therefore, since, 
And because you need to pay attention when you see those little connecting words because they connect the ideas of Scripture. So when you come to a passage like this and you see the phrase in verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, the question that must be answered is this, what is made possible because of the hope laid up for us in heaven? And a related question is, how does hope make it not only possible, but actual? So when you see that phrase, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, you need to go back and look what's possible because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, and how does that hope make it possible, not only possible, but actual in our lives? So we all know God's demand, the law's demand in Scripture. We've read Leviticus 19 this morning. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the reason given, I am the Lord. We saw that refrain throughout that passage. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Because God is who he is, he has the authority to command us not only what to think and do and say, but even what to feel. And God says, we must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. It's summary of the law. It's a summary of scripture. But because of sin, we're unable to fulfill that. I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many of you this week have perfectly loved those in your sphere of influence? Think spouse, children, parents, neighbors, co-workers. If we're honest, None of us have, and we don't have to go back that far to this past week. We can probably go back to just earlier this morning or at least last night as I was asking forgiveness last night. Thankfully, I was given forgiveness as well. Because of sin, we are unable to fulfill God's law. God's law says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. But because of sin, that's impossible for us to fulfill perfectly. Now, the Bible has been summarized in this way. You must. So God gives this declaration. He gave it to Adam and Eve. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They did not obey, and ever since, no one has been able to obey. So you must is the first declaration of Scripture, but because of sin, you cannot. That's the reality. Ever since Adam and Eve, we have not been able to live a righteous life of perfect obedience to God. But the good news is that in Christ, God did. God came in Christ to fulfill all that we could not do, so that we might have what we could never have had in and of ourselves. In Christ, God did. And then finally, the message of the Bible is, in him, you can. So we have seen that we are called to love. We can't do that in our own, but in him, we can, because Jesus has perfectly fulfilled the law in his life, in his death, and his resurrection. He's poured out his Holy Spirit upon us. He's poured out his love into our lives through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us so that now we may and are able to do what we were formerly unable to do, namely, love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourself. Now... We, as we think about this brokenness in the world, there are some who have um, 
experienced brokenness. They have wondered if they have done or said or even thought something for which they think they cannot be forgiven. And having been a pastor for a number of years, I've encountered lots of people who have felt this way. They, they have this anxiety and this even worry and fear that they've done something or said something or thought something that is so horrible that they can't be forgiven. And they're so consumed with what they've done that it eats them up inside. The book of Colossians gives an answer to that. It calls us to look to Christ. In chapter 1, verses 11 through 15, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So God invites us to lift our eyes from ourselves to the cross and to Christ so that we will be reminded of what God has done for us in Christ and who Christ is, the image of the invisible God. So if he says we're forgiven, we are forgiven. Now others have had things done to them or said to them or things that have been said about them or maybe they're concerned of what others are even thinking about them and that causes them great trouble in their life and God would encourage them to rely again on Jesus. They've felt like others have wronged them and perhaps they have They've done things to them. They've said things to them. They've said things about them, and they're worried that people are even thinking bad thoughts about them. And as the popular songs say, they just can't shake it off or let it go. And so the next time something hurtful happens, it triggers a response from which it's almost impossible for them to recover. And so the Bible says again in Colossians, fix your eyes on Jesus, who you are in Christ, not what others have done to you or said to you or about you. Colossians 3, verse 1 and 2 and 3, um, set your minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and, and then go on from there Colossians 3 12 and 13 put on then as God's chosen ones holy and beloved compassion kindness humility meekness and patience bearing with one another and if one has a complaint against another forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you so you also must forgive so whether it's things that we've done or things that people have done to us, the Bible's answer is look to Christ. He is our sole sufficiency, and we can be free and have hope in him. Now, I've titled this message, God Gives Hope to Enable Love, and the Greek word for hope is elpis, kind of like Elvis. You know, some people say that Elvis is alive, and he's here or there, and there's the church of Elvis, and different things like that. Elvis is not alive, at least on this earth, in a physical body. But hope is alive because of Jesus Christ. 
and only because of him. So where can we find the power to obey God's law that says we must love our neighbor as ourself? Well, some people, when they're looking for power to obey, power to fulfill the law of God, they turn to legalism or moralism. We can see this in Colossians 2.21, these commands about do not handle, do not touch, do not taste. And some people rely upon those kind of rules to get them through life. But the problem is, you can obey a rule without a change of heart. God wants our hearts to be changed, and then our lives will be changed from the inside out. Some of us individuals have tried to live moral lives. We've tried to find our way to God by being a better person, trying harder, doing better. God isn't interested in us being better people. God came in Christ to make us new people. And so, not only individuals, but when you get a collection of individuals together, they may try to codify a moral code. School dress codes, for example. I went to a college where there was a lifestyle statement that had to be signed for the period of time while you were a student. Some of you have been to colleges like that. Some of you have been to colleges that were more extreme than the one I attended. But the college that I attended had a lifestyle statement that focused on things like um, avoiding alcohol and avoiding not giving indiscriminate attendance at the theater, so to wisely choose if you were going to the theater, to avoid social dancing and particular kinds of card games. And so that kind of lifestyle, that kind of approach can be summed up in a prideful way. We don't dance or drink or smoke or chew, and we don't go with girls who do. And some people think that's the good news of the Bible. That's all it's about, to make us a little bit better than our neighbors so that we can be proud of ourselves and look down our nose at our neighbor. That's not the message of the gospel. Paul was writing because in Colossae there were some who were giving these commands, do not handle, do not touch, do not taste. They were, con- they were going into legalism. They were adding that to Jesus. Okay, Jesus may have died on the cross. You can trust in him, that's good. But let's add to it some morality, some legalism, some behavior modification. And he says, no, when you try to add to Jesus, you take away, you end up with nothing. Others turn to paganism. In Colossians 2.18, it talks about people who are insisting on the worship of angels. As I said, what is that all about? Apparently, there were some kind of folk pagan practices in the city of Colossae. Some archaeological discoveries have uncovered things that indicated that they were worshiping uh, different saints and angels. It was a pagan kind of practice. It was part of their folk religion. So you had these Jewish teachers coming in and saying you need to add some moralism, some legalism. You need to be circumcised. You need this and that. And then there were some pagan elements that were saying you need to worship angels and things that uh, were not part of Judaism. We still see that today. In fact, this week, if you were paying attention to the news, you might have heard that um, Union Seminary in New York tweeted out that uh, during chapel this week, the students were invited and actually did 
confess their sins to plants. You didn't see this? There was a, on Twitter, if you look or on, you can search Google and not right now, please, but you'll find a group of students kneeling and sitting around a collection of house plants. And they're confessing their sins, their climate sins, to these plants. Because we have sinned against you plants. They're, these are beings that they felt like they had to confess to. Now, obviously, Christians are called to steward God's creation because of God the creator. And if we do not care well for God's creation. We confess our sins to God, but we don't confess our sins to plants. That is paganism. That's pantheism. And something like that was going on in Colossae and is still happening today. And so people will try to stir up these kind of things. And Union Seminary, in case you don't know, it was founded by Presbyterians. But originally it was founded on scripture, but then some Presbyterian professor there got the idea that we could stand in judgment of scripture and say, well, this is really true and this isn't, and so we can throw out this and took a different view, a lower view of scripture, and then the Presbyterian seminary was handed over to the Episcopalians, and then the Unitarians were brought in, and so it's a kind of a hodgepodge now, but it is not faithful to God, the authority of God's word in scripture, or the uniqueness and authority of Jesus Christ. So that's part of the larger church in name only. And so the church today is in danger of those kinds of influences, either towards moralism or towards paganism, and we have to be on guard. But God has given us hope in Christ to enable us to love. A week ago Friday, I was visiting Mary Gammon in her home, and it was the day when the hospital bed, the hospice people were bringing, delivering the hospital bed, and she was transferred from a power recliner chair to the hospital bed. And before that, I was sitting by her in this chair and um, just talking with her, and her language was filled with graciousness and great fullness. She was telling about God's graciousness to her and God's great and her gratefulness to God for his grace. And she was asking about my family and the church and all of this kind of thing. And yet she was in obvious pain. She was on morphine, strong painkiller. And she was in and out of coherency at the time. But she was focused on demonstrating love to others. And you might ask, how is that possible? When you're in that kind of situation, how is that possible? That's not natural. It would be natural for someone to be focused on themselves and say, oh, my pain is so awful. This is so terrible. I'm so tired of this. But instead, she's asking, how's your family? How's the church? It's not natural. It's supernatural. It's empowered by the Spirit of God. And it's empowered by the hope that is ours in Christ. And so Mary and I talked about the hope that is ours in Christ, and I shared with her about my, my own parents. When they were near the end of their lives, and my mom made a statement like this, the last statement I remember her saying to me, I'm not going anywhere where you can't go also. And my dad's last statement to us was, I'll see you in heaven. When you have that kind of hope, that kind of confident assurance, you're free to love. 
You're free to pour out your life for others and be concerned about them and to have a love that is, dis, that is selfless, that is not interested in self, but is caring about others because your hope is secure in Christ. When we have that kind of hope, when we have the hope of God's provision that he will provide all that we need, we're free to say, take this world, give me Jesus. Take the things of this world. In the book of Hebrews, it talks about believers who went to visit those who were in prison. And while they were visiting them, their homes were plundered. And they joyfully accepted it. How did they do that? Because they knew they had a better possession. When you have that kind of hope, you're free to love others. You're free to be let go of worldly possessions. When you have that kind of hope, you're free to not be focused on self. When you're confident in what God is going to do for you in Christ, what he's already done for you in Christ, and what he's promised to you in Christ, you're free to take your eyes off yourself and look to others. So God has given us hope, and we use that word hope so flippantly as I hope it won't rain this afternoon. It's just wishful thinking. But when the Bible uses the word hope, it's talking about confident assurance that God will fulfill every promise he's ever made. And so when you have that kind of hope in in God, you can be confident and you can be free to love one another. When we think about our hope, we see in Scripture that our hope is ultimately God himself. Psalm 65, 5 says, By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth. 1 Timothy 1, 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior in Christ Jesus our hope. So our hope is ultimately God, that we will have God and have all of him. And if you have that, then you have enough and you can be free to love other people. Our hope is a certain hope. It's not just wishful thinking. Proverbs 10.28 says, The hope of the righteous brings joy, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. There's a false hope, and there's a true certain hope, and that's what we have in Christ. Our hope is that we will not only be declared, but made righteous. Galatians 5.5 says, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await wait for the hope of righteousness. And when we first trust in Christ, we are declared righteous. It's settled. We're not guilty anymore before God. But one day, we will experience in actuality the righteousness that we now have through justification. We will be holy and blameless before God. And we'll get to this in Colossians 1, that God's plan through Christ is to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard so our hope is God it's all that God will do for us and all that he is for us there are different aspects of the hope laid up in heaven One is sharing the glory of God, that we will see God in his glory, that we will have that glory 
poured out upon us and our lives will be transformed by it. We will have glorified bodies, not just resurrected bodies where we come back to life, but they'll be glorified. We will share in the glory of God. We will see the risen Lord. Now, on this earth, we cannot see God and live, but the Bible says that one day we will see Jesus face to face. We will see the risen Lord. That's an aspect of our hope. We will be freed from sin and sickness. We've already, in Christ, been freed from the penalty of sin, which is death. We've been freed from the power of sin. We are enabled by the Holy Spirit to say no to sin and yes to God. And one day we will be freed from the presence of sin. There will be no sin in heaven. That is our hope. And then another aspect of our hope is enjoying eternal life, life that never ends, enjoying it, fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. These are different aspects of our hope. And when our hope, when our eyes are fixed on God and the hope that we have in Christ, there is a power that comes to us that enables us to love. Give you an illustration of this power. This last week, past Tuesday, we took our grandchildren up to Amish country and we went to Yoder's Amish home. If you haven't been there, you can take a tour of the, the home. It's not an actual Amish home. It was built to show what the Amish live like. And then there's the barn and there's a schoolhouse and there's a buggy ride. And we did the whole package. So we were taking the buggy ride and this horse had been out on the uh, circuit quite a bit that day. It was a warm day. And when we rode, I think that horse was kind of getting tired. He had two loads of our family. And um, at the end of the ride, after he had labored, he's getting close to the barn and his pace picks up. There's power in hope when you have this confidence that I'm almost home. I've got a hope. It enables you. There's a power that you find resources that you didn't have before. Some of you are runners. You know about what it's like when you hit the bell lap or when you see the finish line out there. There's a power that you can find resources that enable you to kick in and get that finishing kick. And cyclists in the Tour de France, they have the flamme rouge, the red flag at the one kilometer mark, and that's where the sprinters go nuts. I have my own, it's on Hollenbach Road. When I go north on my bike trips and I come back across Hollenbach, there's typically a prevailing wind out of the west, so I have a tailwind, and it's just flat straight away. It's fun. You feel like you're almost home. I can dig deeper for some resources. When we have this hope, we're enabled and we're empowered to do what we couldn't do in ourselves, and that is to love our neighbor as ourself. As Paul said, I give thanks to God because of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. So when we have this hope, we're enabled to love, when we're, we're freed from self-focus to focus on Christ and others. But some skeptics would say, oh, you Christians, you're so focused on the next life. You're so heavenly minded. You're no earthly good. Maybe you've heard that. You can think about that for a minute. How many people do you know that are so heavenly minded? I don't think that's our typical experience. Typically, the people around us, and ourselves included, are so earthly minded. There's things to do, there's burdens, there's relationship issues, there's financial issues, there's 
all sorts of challenges in this life, responsibilities, and we get so focused on this world that we can't focus on those around us. I think the Bible and Scripture would teach that it's only those who are heavenly-minded that are any earthly good. When they have their hope set in Christ, they are freed up to love one another. And so, I would ask you, will you give yourself to Christ and hope in Him in order to love? And I would invite you to give yourself to Christ as we sing in a moment, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. Take my will and make it thine, it shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is thine own, it shall be thy royal throne. Take my love, my Lord, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that you have come in Jesus Christ, that through his life, death, and resurrection, he has done everything necessary for our salvation, that he is all that we need, and that you have given us hope in him, that you are our hope. And so, Lord, cause us by your Holy Spirit to so hope in you that we find resources that we did not have in and of ourselves, resources to love all the saints with the love of Jesus Christ. Lord, we give you our lives. We ask that you would be glorified in them, that we might have fullness of joy in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.